There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. You are listening to Close Reads. Um, whether or not you mean to. I am David Kern, and <laughs> I'm here with Angelina Stanford and Tim McIntosh. Angelina and Tim. The worst ever intro. Do you... It's like so apologetic. We're close reads, and I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I'm not saying I'm, I'm sorry. What I'm not able to fathom is how someone would end up listening to this and not mean to. Like they're scrolling through their dial. What's, what, what's this? I'll tune in this. <laughs> They're like, Close wait, three. this is not the tractor pull channel. Uh, so, yeah, right. so like, you know how? Do you guys use a podcasting app or anything? I do now. Okay, so like, <laughs> if you're using a podcasting app, you could like be listening to I don't know your favorite discussion on how to bake chocolate chip cookies or whatever from or whatever, and then you fall asleep, and then when you wake up, all of a sudden you're listening to like a bunch of people complain about a book or something. Uh, I mean, that uh, would be a little bit weird. Maybe better. I don't know, but. It might be a little bit weird, so you know. You just keep waiting for them to get to the recipe. Yeah. <laughs> All I want to know what? is how much flour to put in the ingredients, and then I want my cookies. Eight and minutes people... at three hundred and fifty degrees. Take it out before it's fully cooked because it will continue to bake on the pan. That's Angelina's little tip for you. <laughs> it's like scrambled eggs. These people keep talking about Lord, some Lord Peter Whimsy I never heard of. Uh... Uh, I'm just loving this voice, Tim. I've never heard this Tim voice before. This is my... Um... Which which Southerner are you making fun of exactly? Yeah, is this like Tim meets Flannery O'Connor meets Fla- this Walker is, This Percy? is my Flannery O'Connor um, character voice. Is that like, that's like There's your... Different... Who's the guy who gets the tattoo on his back of the of um, Jesus with the eyes that are always following him? Do you remember oh, that? Oh, that's in... Um, that's the Parker's character. back, yeah. Yeah, Parker. Yeah, Parker. That's, well, that's Parker. a very specific voice you have. So that's that's the voice we were hearing. I got a tattoo of Jesus on the back, and it's uh, his eyes follow you everywhere. <laughs> I am dying. It's, I'm gonna be honest. It sort of sounds like you're in a TV show that takes place like in North Georgia and they brought someone in who wasn't from there and he just kind of <laughs> did the accent real quick which is weird because you're because from Georgia. Georgia. I know what that accent sounds yes, like. I've got that bad accent. native accent. You see and I felt like it was very like Billy Bob Thornton mm, french fried potatoes. Like I felt like that's where we were Some going. Oh, the Kaiser blade. <laughs> Well, I mean, let's. I mean, he he is making fun of it, so you know it can't be too real when you're making fun of it. Otherwise, it's too too close to home. It's too painful. Well, we should no point out that Tim is a native Georgian, and so it is okay for him to make fun of it. That's right. <laughs> Before yeah, exactly. we get hate mail, there protecting you, you, Tim. Exactly. exactly. And I want to say, like, it's I do kind of like tease people about the accent in North Georgia or in South Georgia, but 
that's my roots, man. I love that place. <laughs> well, uh, speaking of roots, we should talk about someone climbing a tree. Um, Oh, nice. <laughs> Segway. Thy name is David. So, so smooth. Just smooth. We are we are here to talk about uh, Murder Must Advertise. Tim was not with us last time, but one of the things that we talked about last time uh, was the way that in chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8, the stakes begin to increase a little bit. Mm. Um, and how you, we, She kind of beat her on the bush in the first four chapters. Um, not not like in a negative way, but she kind of did. She was kind of setting stuff up, and we were trying to learn the names. Meeting of Meeting our characters. Yeah, of which there are too many. And then um, we Whoa. get stakes. Oh. What, did I say something? Um, I just felt like that, that, that ooh, it's almost a criticism. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it was an observation. Um, and then uh, here we get that the next kind of level of that. But before we get too into that too much, I want to say a quick reminder that if you head over to iTunes or Stitcher or wherever, then you can get the Close Reads only feed for this show. So feel free to do that if you want to just get the Close Reads uh, episodes and not all the other shows. Um, caveat there, I always have to say this, we'd love you to keep listening to the, to the other shows. But if Close Reads is your, you know, your jam and it's the only Cersei jam you have, then feel free to uh, just head over to there and subscribe to just that show and we will uh we'll show up on your uh on your app every monday afternoon um to talk to talk books with you tim what do you think of this book this is a very general thing to mm-hmm. say you were not here last time so mm-hmm. what do you think of murder must advertise just roughly speaking am like, i generally really speaking at liberty to say this maybe i mean i asked you <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I can always edit it out. I'm kind of struggling with this book a little bit. Um, It feels... It feels jumpy. Like, I like Lord Peter Whimsey. Um, Like, you like the man. Yeah, I like him as a character. I like the man. Um, There are aspects of it that the intrigue is growing. But there's not that sense of kind of um, riveting tension to mix a metaphor, there's not a growing sense of tension um, that's really keeping me deeply involved. Maybe it's going to arrive, but I I haven't hit it yet. No, I don't think she writes like that. Like, I don't think any of her books, they're not like I can't put it down page turners, you know. They're definitely not motivated. Oddly enough, their detective story is not really motivated by a compelling whodunit question. Okay, so... There's a couple chapters in the reading that we did this week, there's a couple of chapters that are, are just, um, they're just kind of whimsy. They're just, uh, I'm going to have a conversation. Did you, did you mean to use that word? Uh, I, once it came out of my mouth, I realized <laughs> that my subconscious manufactured it. <laughs> so you're <laughs> saying she succeeded. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. So, um, so then if you know we we've talked about the post World War 1 nihilism all those things but in both of the shows I don't know if you listened last week Tim but or to last week's show but in the both the intro and in the first four chapter episode we talked about it as well. So is that idea that kind of central idea Angelina what you would say is driving the story rather than the who done it because you said there's 
there's not this whodunit question that's pushing the story forward. Yeah, um, I, I agree with that. I think so. I just I like being in this world. So she's hmm. so so for you. Well, for you, it's not fair because you're in love with Lord Peter. But well, I didn't start out that way. You know, <laughs> we had a courtship. It was oh, okay. you know, it took time. He had to woo me. <laughs> um, so do so for you. It's about the world. It's like yeah. I, I wonder. I wonder if that's how most that's... readers would feel. In talking to people like, okay, here's a question then. Head over to our Facebook group, the Close Reads Facebook group. If you're not a part of that, you go over to Facebook. Um, search Close Reads Podcast in the face, in the search bar, and you can join the group. And I'm going to put this question out there. What is it, for those of you that love Dorothy Sayers' books, and, um, her fiction, and who love Lord Peter, what is it that motivates you to keep reading? Um, not that it's like really boring and not worth reading, but what in particular motivates you? What keeps you coming back book after book, chapter after chapter to, to, the, to her work? Is it the world? Is it the, the mystery, the, the whodunit nature? Um, is it you're in love with Lord Peter like Angelina? Is it that you have um, deep thoughts about nihilism after World War One? What is it? Let us know what, you, what, what it is characters? for you. You know, the core characters mm-hmm. go the through characters. all the books, and I like that as well. They're changing relationships. And... Maybe what we should do, guys, is we should put up a poll on Monday. Because I think you can. Oh, that'd be fun. And then people can choose, and we can see how the voting turns out. On Only that. if we can choose more than one, because I would have voted yes to all of them except the whodunit. <laughs> I do not that's know so about the mechanism of that. but See, I, I think that's exactly what – I think I was primed, rightly or wrongly, from – um reading of other mystery stories, detective yeah. stories, I was primed for a whodunit. That's not Dorothy Sayers fault. I mean, she wrote the book that she wrote. Yeah. And I, I came with this sort of expectation. <clears throat> and I have to say, as a reader, the first time I read something, it's almost always, I'm a plot reader, first and foremost, and I'm a character reader, right on the heels of being a plot reader. And it's it's really interesting. There's this show. So so by contrast, I'm not that much a world reader. Meaning, um, Angelina, you just said there's something about stepping into this world that's really appealing to you. I I don't really particularly care for fantasy, and that's part of what makes fantasy so engaging for other readers is that it creates this other world and you just walk into it and you can almost feel it and i've just got to say as a reader that's typically not what i go for there's this show (laughs) there's this show called stranger things have you guys seen stranger things oh yes okay all of my friends and my students were just raving about stranger things raving about it Mm -hmm. so i watch the i watch stranger things and i get halfway through and i'm like why does everyone like this show? You don't, I don't like it? No, I don't like it. Did I you think finish it? This does not represent the, the views of close <laughs> the, the, the views of close reads. Did, you, did I, you finish it? I got all the way to the last 20 minutes. This is how bad it, it was for me. I got to the last 20 minutes, and the recording that I had fritzed out, and I was like, well... Am I gonna get somebody to get me this last recording so I can watch? Just the watch last it on Netflix. Minutes? I don't really care. 
I mean, I maybe I should kind of just like to finish it off, but I was that uninvolved. And the only reason I bring that up is because when I ask other people, this may not be y'all's view, but when I've asked a couple of my students, what, why do you like this show so much? So much of it for them is the aesthetic. It's the world that was created. That you walk into this world that's kind of 1980s suburbanites. With um, a few misplaced things historically. So don't watch it with me unless you want to hear me screaming out that that was 1984 mixed with 1987 <laughs> in the same scene, okay? <laughs> I am but that even, person. Even that, Angelina, the fact that you recognize these very particular things about the world that they recognize, it's its one of those shows, like Mad Men, very much where like the Mad world that that creates, it's, it's the aesthetic that's so appealing to people. And frankly, that's... Mad Men for me might be an exception in that regard, but for the most part, um, the world creation is just not my primary interest as a reader. Maybe it's a shortcoming, so I, but I'm a plot guy. I'm a character guy. I don't. I th- this is why you write plays. So I yeah. have an I have an plays opinion. So hot. I have an opinion on this world motivator idea. Um. I don't think that's a thing that exists. Like, I don't think people will, will stay with something simply because of the world, because, um, no, like you don't see the world. You can't experience a world except through some characters perspective. So I think that unless you have, like, if you say I'm a, I'm a world person, what you're really saying is that you like a perspective on a world. Or, and you would include in that, David, would you include in that um, the perspective of the narrator? Because if you've got a – Sure, yeah. If you don't have a first-person sure. narrator, you, your narrator is te- providing the details of this world. <clears throat> yeah, I mean that gets into all kinds of discussions we could have on like the finer points of perspective and narration and um, you know all, all that kind of stuff, which probably this we don't have time for that right now. But but yeah, sure, the, the narrator is included in that. Um but even but even beyond the narrator, like how a character interacts with the world itself, whether he's the, the the narrator or not, is going to determine how you feel about the world largely. Mm. Mm. Like we don't, I mean, we don't just love Middle Earth for its own sake. We I love mean, Tolkien's we, voice. And his, we we and love his... the we love the voice, um, but we also love what it means. And, yeah. And like, we love it because of Frodo. We love it because of Sam and Gandalf and, um, you know, whoever else you love. <laughs> but, but, um, you know what, David, this is a great point you're making. Well, Angel- it's a great point. go ahead. Sorry. Well, I was just going to say, Angelina said that she <laughs> loves it. Her first thing she said was she loves it because of the world. So I don't mean to be challenging why she thinks she loves a thing. <laughs> well, it's very close. I mean, but I actually agree with what you're saying. You know, if if we had, if I had to expand on what I meant by that, I mean, mm-hmm. it's Lord Peter's world. Mm-hmm. It's his world, and I'm seeing it through his eyes and all of that. You know, mm-hmm. even though it's a third person narrator. Yeah, the it, characters are related, very closely related to that. Right. Go ahead. See now, now I want to back off what I said a little bit because having heard what you said, David. That it is actually, it's the voice of the narrator. It's the point of view of the narrator. That's what creates the world. And I'm I'm now imagining a couple of writers that I love who I think are supreme 
at creating a world and I am attracted to the world that they describe. The one that pops to mind is Cormac McCarthy. Right. There is something about the atmosphere that he creates with his pen and his narration. It is so palpable. It's so, it's not always a very friendly place that he, a friendly world that he's creating. Right. Um, but for me, it's terrifically motivating as a reader. And so I'm kind of walking back on what I said a little bit earlier. I think I, you help me understand, David, that it actually is the perspective of the storyteller. Um, if I can't buy into the world and the way in which they're telling that world, that's where I kind of struggle. And I think that's kind of where I'm struggling with Murder Must Advertise. Well, what I, what I was going to say about Cormac McCarthy, I think, ties into that because with McCarthy, and he, like this is true of, say, uh, Faulkner or even a Hemingway or a Gatsby or, you know, like the really great novelists use the word atmosphere and they create atmosphere by describing places and things like that. Mm. But even more so, they create atmosphere by the style of their prose and like by the consistency of characters and things like that. So like a yeah. world is so much more than um, like the Shire means so much more than just hills with hobbit holes in them. Right. Um, and it's because of the, the prose is part of that. Like the style of the prose, like in McCarthy, there's it's, it's spare and it's, yes. it's, um, it's rugged and it's um, at times, there's a violence to the menacing. Yeah. There's right. a violence and a menace. Yeah. To the style of prose, to the way he structures his sentences and his language and things like that. And that in and of itself creates atmosphere. And so that atmosphere, like there's a consistency to that, which makes it ext- the memorable, like the most memorable worlds have a consistency in the way that, that the writer writes. And then that's tied mm-hmm. into, you know, the characters um, and, and the way the characters interact with the place. It's like Flannery O'Connor says, like, redemption doesn't mean anything unless it happens to someone. It's the mm-hmm. same thing with, like, world. The world doesn't mean anything unless it's lived in. Yeah. Um, and so I don't, I'm, I'm, yeah, Angelina, I don't think we really disagree. But that I can see where Tim would say that there's a, maybe in the way she writes that, that she's, there's varying styles, it feels like, in her writing at times in this book. And so it, maybe I can see where Tim's having a hard time or where someone might have, a hard and I'm time wondering, with the I'm wondering world, too, the if the fact it. that that Lord Peter is juggling so many different masks is is part of the problem to me. Like you know, like if you relate to characters yeah. and things like that, I mean, it's it's very difficult to get a, a hold of who he is because he's pretending to be so many different people. And that might lead to, I don't know, I'm reluctant to call it an unevenness of prose, but but. Maybe a slight inconsistency in voice, something like that from the narrator. I was actually thinking about that today because if you look at chapter, like even just in the these chapters today, you have so many different perspectives. So in what is it, nine, ten, eleven, and twelve, that the voice feels like you're jumping from one voice to another, which I'm guessing she did on purpose, but um, it does. Yeah, her other books don't read like that. So yeah, yeah, I agree. So like the chapter. I made a note of this. Oh, it's almost like if it was a movie, the scenes are being shot in different styles. Right, 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 right. And it, it seems like the um, we're kind of piggybacking or we're riding on a character's shoulder. For example, I think it's chapter nine where we are with um, 
what's his name, Copley, Mr. Copley, the entire time. Is it chapter nine? Is it chapter eight? Uh, yeah, not nine. It must have been eight. Nine then. is the tree stuff. Oh, that's right. It's eight. <laughs> eight, eight which you guys discussed last week. Yeah. Well, you're with Copley the whole time, and then on I think it, it's eleven. We're kind of with Tallboy almost the whole time. Yeah. But you know? yeah. Well, eleven. Trying to get the cricket team sorted out. Yeah. Well, no. The, uh, is that eleven? No, that's ten. Yeah, that's ten, ten. Sorry, eleven. Uh, what struck me was eleven jumps into this, like, very. Um, it's much more lyrical. It's like the end of chapter seven or what it is, where he's just yeah. I had lots of passages underlined in eleven. Yeah. So it's very lyrical, and um, it's very much. A, it feels like a very much a piece of its time. Like it could have been written by, by like Fitzgerald. Huh. Um, and it's very. Um, um, it's very modern, like mo- like a modern lyricism. Like I don't mean that in a bad way, it, but it's just a modern way of writing, like a modern way of like novels in the eighteen hundreds didn't write that way. Um, Can you describe what that what that modern way is that you? How do you see that, David? Okay, let me. Um... So what, chapter what, what's, eleven. What's really interesting though is there's this irony because. Like even in, the, I, I was thinking about whether or not this novel would be better or how it would change if you had a limited perspective. Like if it huh. was like a pulp novel, like we talked about last time, like or like you know one of the Sam Spade novels by Raymond Chandler, where it's primarily from the perspective of the one character and you're gathering mm-hmm. information as they gather information. Like how would this novel change? Would it be better? Would it be worse? I I don't have a judgment to make on that but i was just definitely be different yeah i mean because because in this section i mean we we get a scene where we don't know any of the characters in the scene right right when when they're when the exchange happens with the drugs right right and then then it comes back into our story but that's not usually the way we tell stories right usually it would have started with parker who we already know and the guy would have come to him and then we'd have worked backwards from there so that was that was that's a very different technique and also that she did this, which um, reading it a little differently this time, obviously for the show and thinking mm-hmm. about things we've been talking about. And I thought mm-hmm. it was so interesting, given that we talked about the rules of the book, that she points out that Lord Peter actually did have a clue, but he didn't know that he had it. Did you catch that? No. I say, say that. that. Say that one more time. Sorry. I'm, it I, I think I marked it. Well, she says that. So Lord Peter's kind of going over, what do I know so far? Yeah, yeah. And she says, but he knows something else. He just doesn't know that he knows it. Yeah. So she's cluing us. So Uh. so we've got an interesting thing going on with the narrator is actually cluing the reader that you too know something, but you don't know you know it. Mm -hmm. So obviously there, there was something significant that happened in some earlier conversation and he hasn't put it together yet. Well, and is the best. only time thus far that the narrator has broken through and kind of directly addressed it, – is it a direct address to the reader? No, it's not because she says it about Peter. He doesn't know yet that he knows it. I'll see if I can find the exact quote. I well, marked it. In, in, in a sense, though, she's talking to the reader like effectively. Right, and, right, right. And the other time that that happened was when she references – you weren't – here for this conversation tim but she, he when he references sorry when she references his uh relation his going on a date with harriet bain that's right. an aside to the reader i see is kind of a, you know not a part not a 
not not directed at the card card character. Yeah. I guess. Um. That so, is not an unheard of um, tactic. There, I was. I taught the Aeneid oh, probably a month ago, and Virgil, Virgil can directly addresses the reader on a few occasions, and it and it totally. I don't want to say it totally breaks voice, but it's such a unique circumstance in that epic that he stops and he doesn't say dear reader, of course, but it's a direct address to the reader. Mm. But you found it. You found it, Angelina. I want to hear it. Yeah. So this is about four pages into chapter 11, right before there's like a break in the page and a big space. One other piece of information Diane had indeed given him, but at that moment he could not interpret it and was not even aware that he held it. He could only wait, like a cat at a mouse hole, till something popped out that he could run after. Interesting. So Interesting. Passed, so he passed his nights wearily. Yeah. Driving the car and playing upon a penny whistle and snatching his sleep in the small hours before taking the daily grind at Pim's. So... Angelina, in other in her other Lord Peter novels, does she? Did you say that she stays a little bit more closely with him? That's my memory. I mean, it's been a long time since I've read yeah. all of them. I mean, but now in one of them, though, he's not there. One of them, Gaudy Knight, it's all Harriet Harriet Vane. He just comes in at the end. He's at the beginning and the end. And she sort she. It's like a matter of pride to her that she doesn't want to have to reach out to him and ask for his help, but. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so in that one, but she's, but, but she's, yeah, she, she stays close. I'm trying to remember though. I mean, it's not unheard of for her to follow other characters mm -hmm. for the information. It's been a long time. I'm sure, I'm sure many of our listeners could, could point out if that was true or not, but that car of his, that car is almost a character. He's always oh, driving really, that car really. fast. One of my favorite scenes is he and Bunt are driving in the Daimler and, um, they have a bunch of port in the car, and the port can't be shaken. <laughs> so Bunter's riding back there with the port very carefully trying to make sure <laughs> that it doesn't get shaken. <laughs> He's quite the connoisseur of fine wines and vintage out-of-print rare books. I have to say, I really liked the, um, the brief chase scene uh, between the, the harlequin, the, the masked man, and Diane. I thought the description, the writing description was really good. The car moved light as a panther. Yeah, so she she packs on the metaphors in some of these in some of these instances, and it's funny how she'll like jump in and out of that. So like if you look mm. at chapter eleven, right before where Angelina was talking or reading, what I was thinking is I act that's actually the exact page that I marked on the question. Would this be a better novel how would it be different with a limited perspective mm. and um the section before that is where i was thinking it sounded very fitzgerald like if you see that um that uh paragraph that begins indeed she might not have mm -hmm. so she said she tells him of course i had nothing to do with it so there's this conversation and then it jumps into his consciousness right um or at least the author's explanation of what's going on in his consciousness and the the fact that we don't exactly know exactly what he's thinking or whether it's him thinking it or whether we're being told it kind of does play into the like the confusion that can create mm -hmm. tension for the reader so there's not like the mystery is kind of it's there but what's even more mysterious in a sense is that 
we don't really know exactly what he's thinking and we're not sure what we're supposed to think about what he's thinking and then we don't know how much he knows and all that but it's she says this was the most phantasmal part of the illusion the border where daydream and nightdream march together in an eternal twilight like that's that's a super fitzgerald sentence right oh it is absolutely david <clears throat> the man had been murdered of that he was now certain so we're now he's now basically drawn this conclusion right and so now the rest of the time is he's up till now he's been trying to decide if he was murdered or confirm it i guess beyond a shadow of a doubt and now for himself anyway he's convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that there was a murder and so now the rest of the book presumably is about solving that but then he says but what hand had had struck the blow and why was still beyond all guessing Braden's instinct told him to hold fast to Diane and then move ahead a little bit. Actually, it's just the next sentence. Sorry. She was the guardian of the shadow frontier through her Victor Dean. Surely the most prosaic denizen of the garish city of daylight had stepped into the place of bright flares and black abysses whose ministers are drink and drugs and it's monarch death. But questioner as he might, he could get no help from her. She had told him only one thing over and over again. He pondered it, wondering how it fitted into the plot. Milligan, the sinister Milligan, knew something about Pims, or somebody who worked at Pims. He'd known of this before he met Dean, for he had, he had said on meeting him, so you're the chap, are you? What connection was there? Um, and then, uh, okay, skip to the next paragraph. Whimsy could not believe it. The fancy had died first, and the death of Dean was, after that, surely superfluous. Besides, when they of the City of Night slay for passion's sake, they lay no elaborate schemes, wipe off no fingerprints, and hold no discreet tongues before or after. Brawls and revolver shots with loud sobs and maudlin remorse are the signs and tokens of fatal passion among leaders of the bright life. Uh, and that, so to me, that could be Nick Carraway describing Gatsby or like describing living in New York, like the decadence. Absolutely. Right? So it, that's, Absolutely. that's where I feel like that's a very much a product of the 20s and 30s. And so then we get over. So she's writing in a very modern way, but then this perspective feels very pre modern. Like the way she jumps around feels almost like it could be like early Dickens or Hoth, like oh uh, yeah like yeah Cooper yeah. or something like that, where like most modern books have a very they're, they're either well okay I was gonna overstate something but a lot of modern modern books like the limited perspective is where so much of the tension is driven, and when Absolutely. they jump around it's done much more. Um, I don't know what the word is. I don't want to say blatantly because she's pretty blatant about jumping around. But um... well, that's kind of her thing, though, right? She, she, nothing, nothing is hidden from us. We have to know it all. But do we? Yeah. When she tells us we do, so I guess in theory we could. But we, until you've read the like the whole book, it's hard to tell when you go from him to her. Right. I mean, yeah. I mean, so we see we see Diane's conversations with Milligan. We we're we're privy to this and not just her telling Whimsy what the guy said, you know. Those kinds of techniques. It's not the detective interviewing people one at a time and hearing their stories. We're actually seeing these things happen. Yeah. You I think part of what gets me a little bit confused is I think when we're eavesdropping on these conversations, I think to myself, now wait. 
should I be playing the role of the sleuth here? <laughs> yeah. Is that my purpose yeah, that's as a, the reader? Yes. That's a good point. How, Angelina, Does that make sense to you, what do Angelina? You do you do you do you snap into that role and say I'm I'm playing the? I do not, here? and maybe huh. I should, but I don't. Honestly, I keep forgetting this is a mystery. I'm just having such a good time, <laughs> you know. I'm, like I'm at the dinner party, and I'm ooh, this guy. Oh, they're waiting for a big cocaine shipment. This is interesting. <laughs> and I'm like, oh wait, there's that dead guy. I, I, every time he mentions Victor Dean, I'm like, oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, I'm just like, ooh, wait, you know, inner office politics, petty squabbling, potentially a cricket match. Oh, I'm I'm in. I'm fascinated. You know. I so so I wonder, Angelina, if this is, if the reader should put himself, herself in the position, not of the sleuth, but of like the beat reporter. You get to, you are the one getting invited as the beat reporter to kind of eavesdrop on all of these things that are happening around the city. And you're just, you get to build kind of an atmosphere of what London is like, or this section of London at this time. Do you think that's a better Kind of well, that's interesting the, because, you know, as you say that, it occurs to me that we actually know things Lord Peter does not know. Right. So it's a real reversal, right? He's going to hear about the cocaine incident third hand from Parker. We, we saw it happen. We already know. Yeah. Well, and then you have the stuff with, like, he gets – one of the chapters begins, I think, with Ginger Joe's reports on each of the different people, right? Right. And then at the end of it, it's like you realize that you're just basically reading – the same thing as what um, uh, Braden slash Whimsy was reading. <clears throat> but when you start reading it, it feels like it's just a list of stuff. And, and and it almost feels like she's forcing her rule on her book. Like we have to know stuff, right? So to get the information across, she's going to have Ginger Joe give a list, which we're going to be able to read just because it has to be there. And now we're being, we're like being overly critical and nitpicky here. So people who love the book, you know, we're, we're bear with us. We're just we're just talking, but um, we love. The, I love the book. I love the book with you. <laughs> so okay, I do have a question for you though, because Tim was talking about struggling it here and there at times. Are there kinds? Are there part? Are there types of moments in this book? I'll put it that way, where you feel like you want to get on to something else. So for some people, it might be when he's with other when he's outside of the office. They just want him to get back into the office. You know how, like, when you're watching a TV uh, show yeah. and, like, mm-hmm. it, maybe it's a family drama and, like, when they're in the house, like, the dialogue crackles and, and you, like, you love it and, like, the, the, there's a great pace to it and that's the part that motivates you. But then when you get to the office or some other part of the person's life, you're just like, yeah, hey, can we just go home again? Is there something like that for you in this book? Um, maybe it's you don't want to be in the office and you like when he's out with Diane or you like when he's playing lord peter like as opposed to i I don't like the scenes where he's not in it as much so chapter 10 was a struggle like it wasn't a struggle but it wasn't wasn't my favorite he's he's in the background of scene 10 all the office politics yeah and tall boys trying to figure out who's who's he gonna play where for cricket and and he's just in the background okay so i have to guess that there's some important something has happened in this chapter (laughs) right i don't don't know what it is so i wasn't as drawn into that chapter as i was into chapter 11 which i hope we talk about because man her her commentary about how the poor people are the ones that are really being advertised to and are the secret force behind the economy mm. that was that was good stuff yeah <laughs> yeah so okay let's talk about 10 first and it was though. such a change after 10 right it was just yeah it was almost abrupt 
Well, the, and that might be what Tim's kind of speaking to. So let's talk 10, though. Um, what is the purpose of, a, of this chapter where you don't have your main character, really any of your main characters? It's all secondary characters. It's office politics. It's kind of soapish, um, as in so This is a great question. This what is, is a great it, question. What is the its purpose? The whole time that I was reading it, I was like, what am I supposed to glean from this? Am I... Am I sleuthing? Am I just eavesdropping? Is this... And she has um, us in that frame of mind where we're like, I'm supposed to be getting something here. I know I'm supposed to be looking for something. So you're supposed yeah. to read closely and look for it. But what is what is the... What do you think the purpose is? Is, is it simply to... She was really into sports? <laughs> she was a, a cricket aficionado? She, she's, well, she, more cricket is on the way, my friend. She oh, got, really? She, she got insulted by... By not being picked up for a cricket match once. <laughs> I mean, I guess we—I guess we're getting some insight into various relationships. We still don't know what the deal is. Why Mr. Tallboy has, mm-hmm. you know, fifty pounds, and that comes up again. And that he's still upset with Mr. Copley about all of that. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. And he's kind of I'm, a jerk. He is a kind of a jerk. We see everybody responding to him. We get a sense of how things sort of fall out, but. I'm I'm imagining this is going to be one of those things like when she says about Lord Peter, you're just waiting for the mouse to jump out the hole, and then all of a sudden you're like, ah. He there's a list at the end of the chapter, which is basically the lineup you know, it's for the, the order, for right? Match, right, and you know, of course, Breeden is listed ninth. Does that maybe that has something to do with where we're going? You know, like maybe the the cricket match that will occur in the future. Maybe this is a setup for that, and and that's an awful big setup, though. It's a really big setup. So on the one hand, she could be like doing something like that, where she's essentially playing a trick on you, and then for the people who read it multiple times, they go back and they're like, "Oh, he batted ninth. I see now. She's now I get it." (laughs) Or or she's just like setting this chapter up where you, if you really want to find out all the information, you can like write. You can make observations and then write them all down and put things together like a puzzle. Um, or she or she just wants us to get to know the characters. But either way, as you said, it is like abrupt when you get to 11. Yeah, it's such a change, right, in tone and writing style and everything. Because yeah. now we're back to Lord yeah. Peter and he's thinking about advertising. and She keeps flipping back and forth through all these worlds. It's one of the reasons why this book is so different than, than the others. And I also, again, you know, I say, I keep using the word edgy, but there's just, there's something about like the seedy underbelly of London that we're seeing here that we don't necessarily see in other books. Other books are more like, you know, drawing room, the butler did it, you know, kind of yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind of stuff. It's just clue in a book. <laughs> Not exactly. <laughs> well, like intelligent, funny clue in a book. Um, Woodhouse, Woodhouse clue in a book. Um, it is very Woodhouse, especially because Bunter, I don't even think, comes into this book. Maybe he's going to come at the end, but we haven't seen him yet. And Bunter's always, you know, sidekicking to Lord Peter. And there's always lots of stuff about what Lord Peter is wearing and what yeah. he's shopping for at the moment. And you see him in his apartment, which you don't see any of that here. Um, hey, hey, sorry, I just got to cut in. I'm curious. Do you guys like the game Clue? Yes. <laughs> Yeah, sure. Yes, I yes. Wait, this yes, my favorite sure. Game when I was a kid. Yeah. Do, okay. It, if someone said, "Hey, come over, let's play Clue tonight," would you get kind of fired up, or you'd say, "Uh, hmm." Well, I, I mean, frankly, I it depends on who it is, right? 
What if it's me? What if it's me? I'm invited. You're gonna make me say some stuff on the air that I'm gonna regret. If 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 Tim, (laughs) if you didn't live in Oregon and you called me and you were like, David, I'm really dying to play Clue. Let's figure out who done it. I'd be like, I'm putting my kids to bed. I'm bringing a bottle of wine and I'll see you in two hours. Yeah, I'd be there, but I probably wouldn't want to play one on one. That'd be a little boring. Yeah, that would be boring. What, Angelina, would you come to the clue party with David? Oh, I would. Oh, man. It would depend, like, if I was just doing it as a personal fail. Like, I'm, I'm helping you get over, like, a broken heart or something. Like, is there an ulterior motive? Like, would I just come because, oh, man, Tim's lonely, so I'm going to go hang no, out Angelina, with him. Angelina, there will be cheesecake and wine. I would probably then say, let's put on Stranger Things yeah. <laughs> instead oh of gosh. watching Clue. Oh, my gosh, right. I'm, I'm actually not a big game night person. That's that's not me. Like whenever people are like, "Oh, friends are coming over, we're gonna play a game," I'm always like, "That's weird." We're gonna do Settlers of Catan, twelve-hour marathon. That seems like not fun to me at all. So, <laughs> although you see, now I really hope I don't have any friends listening to this podcast, and I'll be like, "But you come to my game night?" Yes, I do because <laughs> I love you, but right. not because so I many, love the game. So many listeners' children are so upset right now. <laughs> They're crying over shoots and ladders. <laughs> I thought that Angelina loved playing shoots and ladders with me. No, little did you I know. I too. <laughs> no. It should make you feel better to know that I do something I don't like out of love of you. <laughs> I do appreciate so, that. So, uh, where were we? Uh, yeah, before yes, I started yeah, talking where about Where are you going clue? with this clue thing? <clears throat> <clears throat> I was completely at my someone's fault. house like three weeks ago, and I just hope to God they are not listening to this. <laughs> oh, I hope they are. I hope they are. I want to. I want to hear the conversation once they listen to this podcast. Angelina, you came over and played Clue. I believe that you were having a good time. You <laughs> drank all of my punch. I believe that you were having a good time. <laughs> um. So, what... where are you going with this, Tim? What's the deal with Clue? Where were you going with this? No, it was a complete and total side note. <laughs> a complete and total side. I love like that game. The psychology of the reader or something. No, love I, Clue. I love Clue, and I, I love Clue. To me, it is an absolute right. I mean, I am so for some reason. I just think that I can figure it out every time before everybody else. And I actually usually do fairly well at that game. I'm not, I'm not a good game player. I don't know why. But Clue is a little bit different. I I think it's because I'm not smart enough. (laughs) No, I I won my first game of Settlers of Catan like maybe a month ago, and I was over the moon. I was so excited. I could not believe that I had won because I just – I'm terrible at that game. (laughs) He's so excited he couldn't show up last week for last week's show. Now, um, no, now we know what that emergency playing. check was. I'm quote unquote busy. Yeah, so, okay. I pulled a muscle playing Settlers of Catan. So speaking of pulling a muscle, through my back out playing of. Settlers of Catan. All those sheep. Speaking yeah, of right. speaking of pulling a muscle, let's go back to the beginning of chapter eleven. Um, Thank you, David. Thank you. Man, these unruly kids. I don't know what that has to do with anything, pulling a muscle, except that you probably would have to pull a muscle to turn around as many times as we have to to get back to that point in the book. <laughs> Our poor readers. Now they don't know if this is a chocolate chip podcast or a Dorothy Sayers podcast yeah. or a Settlers of a Catan or, or Angelina confessing horrible, horrible things on the air. Well, it's definitely that. Um, <laughs> let's talk it about 
underlined almost everything in the first <coughs> page. Let's talk about the chapter. The the discussion of advertising. If all the advertising in the world were to shut down tomorrow, you see that? It's midway through that like really long, really long paragraph. Actually, the first is like the first paragraph is just one long Faulkner paragraph. Um, at the chapter, at least in my what's the, what's the beginning of the what's the beginning of the first sentence of the chapter that you're talking about, or the of the paragraph that you're talking about, David? Well, the first the first sentence. I mean, in my version, the first paragraph is like is like two pages long. Yeah, that's what I've got too. So I don't oh. see the sentence you're talking about, though. Um, you see where it starts listing all those names? Oh, like... I got it. If all the advertising in the world, I see, I see it. So it's just under where he's listing like blanks, gloves, dashes, footwear, whatnots, weatherproof com- complexion cream, and thing gummies, beautifying shampoos. You see that? You see that, Tim? Yes. So right under that, a couple sentences below, it says, "If all the advertising in the world were to shut down tomorrow." Maybe we could read that. Um, and, uh, Angelina, you want to read that for a bit there? Okay, sure. If all the advertising in the world were to shut down tomorrow, would people still go on buying more soap, eating more apples, giving their children more vitamins, roughage, milk, olive oil, scooters, and laxatives, learning more languages by gramophone, hearing more virtuosos by radio, redecorating their houses, refreshing themselves with more non-alcoholic thirst quenchers, cooking more new appetizing dishes, affording themselves that little extra touch which means so much? Or would the whole desperate whirly gig slow down and the exhausted public relapse upon plain grub and elbow grease? He did not know. Like all rich men, he had never before paid any attention to advertisements. Or maybe we should say advertisements. Advertisements. (laughs) He had never realized the enormous commercial importance of the comparatively poor, not on the wealthy who buy only what they want when they want it, was the vast superstructure of industry founded and built up, but on those who, aching for a luxury beyond their reach and for a leisure forever denied them, could be bullied or wheedled into spending their few hardly won shillings on whatever might give them, if only for a moment, a leisured and luxurious illusion. Mm. Uh, Tim, pick it up there. Phantasmagoria, a city of dreadful day, of crude shapes and colors, piled babel-like in a heaven of hash, cobalt, and rocking over a void of bankruptcy, a cloud cuckoo land, peopled by pitiful ghosts, from the thrifty housewife providing the grand family meal for fourpence with the aid of Dairyfield's butter beans in margarine, to the typist capturing the affections of Prince Charming by a liberal use of Muggins Magnolia face cream. Keep going, keep going. <laughs> Among these phantasms, Death Breeden, driving his pin across reams of office fool's cap, was a phantasm too, emerging from this nightmare toil to a still more fantastical ex- uh, existence amid people whose aspirations, rivals, rivalries, and modes of thought were alien and earnest beyond anything in his waking experience. Nor, when the Greenwich-driven clocks had jerked to half-past five, had he any world of reality to which to return. From then the illusory Mr. Breeden dislimbed and became the still more uh, illusionary harlequin of the dope addict's dream, an advertising figure more crude and fanciful than any that postured in the columns of the morning star, a thing bodiless and absurd, a mouse mouthpiece of stale cliches 
shouting in dull ears without a brain. From this abominable impersonation, he could not now free himself, since, at the sound of his name, or the sight of his unmasked face, all the doors in that dream city, the city of dreadful night, would be closed to him. Okay. That's pretty powerful stuff. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, yeah, this is such good stuff. You know, I'm wondering if this idea of all the personas that Lord Peter's having to put on, all the different masks, and he's mm -hmm. worried about, you know, having them revealed. I wonder if that's going to be a theme for the killer. You know, if, if they were also wearing a ooh. mask. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Right, like maybe they're the respectable person, but really, because we were definitely seeing this whole seedy underbelly thing. Well, and we know that there was something shady about Pims, potentially, from what Milligan said. Yeah, yeah. One thing that you notice in here is she talks about like how um, he became a still illu a more illusionary harlequin of a dope addict's dream, an advertising figure more crude and fanciful, and so on. So we have this idea of like the advertising figure, and then he calls that she calls that anyway, or whoever it is talking here says from this abominable impersonation. And so she's correlating the idea of advertising with the idea of masks. Mm -hmm. And so that ties back to some of the other conversations previously in the book about advertising. And you get like the, um, the, and then you tie that in with the stuff here about how like it, rich men buy only what they want when they want it. Cause they have the agency to do that. Right. Yeah, but the poor person is seeking a something to mask their status, right? To to create a mask of um of something better, right? To make it seem like they have something better. What is um if only for a moment, a leisured and luxurious illusion. So you so advertising can you through by buying something that is advertised to you you can create an illusion like he's putting on a mask you, you can impersonate something that you're not mm -hmm. um and then she talks about phantasms and ghosts and all this kind of stuff and they're trying to buy their way to some happy existence and then you contrast that to diane de Mamory, who's rich and unhappy and bored and mm. she's the a walking embodiment of you know money can't buy you happiness right and she's attracted to the mystery right to to the right because of that because the because the money can't buy her what she wants that figure is appealing to her she's yes like, i think she something, says something, something else that, you're trying to get right i think he says something like you only want me because you can't have me i mean if she's rich she can have anything right but she can't have him so mm. oh yeah that's the yeah. that's the attraction yeah. She would be, I think he even says, you know, you'd be bored of me like you're bored of all the others. Well, it's like you really, it's like if you think about a car or a pair of shoes or whatever, when you, like the, the, it, the, the pair of shoes almost always probably is better as an idea than an actual thing you have. <laughs> than a reality. And like you, you, when you do put that amazing pair of boots on, you, it's 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 awesome not just for their own sake but for what they mean right like because they make you look a certain way or that they give you a certain the illusion of a certain kind of status i mean as much mm -hmm. as i mean i guess status whether status is an illusion or not we can discuss another time <clears throat> but it's it, it, the boots themselves 
are good for what? They they protect your feet, but but the really expensive boots, you don't need really expensive boots to do that. The really mm. nice boots, the really nice car, it's not about getting you from one place to the other. It's about the status. And so when if you're poor and you can buy something and you can create that illusion, then it makes up for that. And so with her, so with the way she's writing this is she's creating all these scenes and people and so and we're never really sure what's the illusion and what's real and and maybe that's what she's getting at by the way but the, by the way it's so jumpy is it creates this sense that then the next the next thing might be more real than the last and you're not really sure what to trust or who to trust and what what's the phantasm what's what's the actual um the actual thing that you can grip onto and hold onto that actually means something and so when you're telling a story that is also meant to make a statement about advertising in the world you live in that kind of storytelling is almost like you know the objective correlative that T.S. Eliot talks about in Hamlet. Of course, he says that Hamlet's a failure because it doesn't have that, but that's neither here nor there. David, you have just – Angelina, do you hear what our host has I, just I did, done? I did. I did. He threw down the gauntlet at your feet, Tim. absolutely him. did. He... I'm pretty sure he spit at you while he did it too. <laughs> but I didn't do anything. Creeped. I just said that T.S. Eliot said that Hamlet – I didn't say it. Oh, no, 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 no. You I can't was, hide behind I, that mask, David. I wasn't talking about Hamlet. I was talking about what you just did with this book. You created a kind of metacritical interpretation that makes cohesive sense out of the kind of shifting uh, narrative and perspectives that are, have kind of confused us in the book. That was masterful. I still don't know what I said, so thanks. Really? You don't know what you said? You just – I mean – you. <laughs> Angelina, that did you hear that? I did hear. I mean, you tied it into the all the all the themes. So, so the subject matter, advertising, and the the themes of masks and illusions and what is real, and that she's making us uncomfortable with all this jumping around because we don't know what's real. While you were talking, I was thinking about what are the moments that feel real to me. Yeah, the moments exactly. in the book that feel real yeah. to me are when Lord Peter is Lord Peter. So. When so the Duchess of interesting, and, I, and I'm thinking that that's almost odd because you think of the aristocracy as being kind of fake, but at, when Lord Peter's with his family, that's when the book feels real to me. Where all the all the other times it just feels like he's playing. And of course, that's pretty rare. And then in chapter whatever it is, Diane and what's his name show up and they break that normalcy, and he's yes. forced to then. Wait play a role how do they break that normalcy so it's normalcy they're at home they're having a dinner party and then they show up out of the blue right and they force uh, their way uh, into the party yeah. now he's worried he's going to be spotted and he has going to be blown. and he has to create this whole scenario right he has to create mm. a character of his cousin who he then is going to have to play and so he has to kind of main he has to cre- out of that normalcy that's broken more illusions become are created right so lord peter himself is that now we got another mask lord peter the cousin of brayden which is not this is not true yeah and he basically so he creates a phantasm basically so yes. so then that character beca- actually does become a a ghostly like someone who's not real like a a character he's creating a character out of thin air well yeah not, not completely but <clears throat> I have to say, I'm impressed. I'm genuinely impressed. I was like halfway through David's explanation. I was like, oh, my gosh, this is really profound. Oh, well, thanks. That was you really sound, very – You sound super surprised. Did you co- – no, no. What, <laughs> the only thing that surprises me is not that you did it. It surprised me that you – I think you did all of that on the fly. I don't think you like rehearsed that last night or I don't think 
Am I right in saying like he was in front of the bathroom mirror? That's, that's why I was trying to. I was struggling to say it. <laughs> that's why I said I don't know what I said. I mean, I know a point I was trying to make, but I don't know that I actually said it. But I guess I did because you you heard it. But but and so then how does it play in that? I feel like there's another level to this because Dorothy Sayers is an advertiser. Uh-huh. And she draws attention to that with the joke when the guy orders a Guinness and yeah. says, I'll take oh, a that Guinness. Was so Guinness great. is good for you, Guinness right? Because she, she wrote that ad. So now we have another layer of uh-huh. what's real. And, you know, this is, this is the author making an inside joke about herself in yeah. the story. It is That's so the only real thing in the whole book. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> Because of my own distaste for advertising, I it's I find it hard to believe that Dorothy Sayers doesn't share some like deep seated animosity to the trade she had to practice to pay her bills. Maybe that's false though. Maybe she thought, no, it's an honest profession if done honestly or something like that. But I just have a hard time imagining how you could do that job with honesty. Well, she certainly not pulling any punches on the, the profession yeah. in this book. I don't remember from her biography, and I know a couple of people who are reading her letters, so I'm going to ask them, how did she feel about advertising? Because I honestly yeah. don't remember. That wasn't one of the things that stuck out to me. That'd be really fun to talk about um, next podcast, what her overall impressions were. Another thing I want to talk about at some point are is basically her approach to um, being a Christian artist, if there is such a thing. I just think that she's really insightful on that sort of stuff. Really insightful. As someone in terms writes, of this book or just in general, like the mind no, of the No, I mean in general. Mm-hmm. I mean mind of the maker. I think that it's worth addressing that because um, I think her view's relatively uncommon, and I just think it's superb. I completely agree with you. You know, I'm wondering... How many Christian bookstores wouldn't carry this book because of language and drugs and orgies? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, those are pretty yeah, good reasons, actually. <laughs> those like, are pretty good far, reasons. As far as not carrying a book in a Christian bookstore. <laughs> <laughs> like, that might be, the, her that name might on be it, the list. With no, her I name know. on it, I think it'd get by. I mean, I'm just... It might, it might, it might. I'm just, I'm just kidding. Uh, well, we've got bad a- art is bad Christianity. That's one of her quotes. That's such a great line. A work that is not true to itself cannot be true to God or anything else. Bad art is bad Christianity. Did you know she hated this book? She did. It's her least favorite of all her books, according to this, what I've read, according to my research. Matt, that's Matt Bianca likes to make fun of people who say according to my research, but so I'm saying that for him. <laughs> Matt Bianco. <laughs> according to my research, Matt Bianco hates it when people say according to research. According- my research confirms that as well. <laughs> it's called an appeal to authority, Matt. It's an appeal to authority. <laughs> um, well, we One should wrap this up. We've been going in an hour. so. Um, Did we even talk about the story? <laughs> who cares? We, we touched on it. David, quick, give us your chocolate chip cookie recipe. <laughs> For those who are just waking up now. <laughs> okay, so it's... I'm trying to remember mine, actually. I can't remember. Dang it. I can't remember it off the top of my head. I was going to try to. You just have to do the end of it. Like somebody just woke up and you're like, and, and then you that's ba- when you add the sugar. And, and and then bake it on for eight minutes on 425. And then you're going to pull it out. You're going to put it on the rack <laughs> and let them cool. But don't let them stay on the pan. They need to go onto the rack. 
Unless you want crispy ones. If you want chewy, you got to put them on the rack. If you want crispy cookies, why are you listening to this podcast? <laughs> like, really, just... <laughs> Your kind are not welcome here. <laughs> if you, we uh, have to have some sort of standards, Dave. You, well, you make you make an excellent point. I did make pretty amazing brownies last night. Oh, they're called hey, bring su- one to, they're called supernatural bring one to the brownies. True story. The clue. Yes, all right, I will. The, I will come for the brownies and also for Tim's company. <laughs> and then I'll, I'll bring the brownies in the port, and um, we'll, we'll try not to. We'll try to protect the port. Can um, I be Scarlet if we play Clue? I would like to be Scarlet. Absolutely. Tim, who's your who's your uh, Colonel who's Mustard? Your, uh, I was just gonna say you're Colonel Mustard, aren't you? I love Colonel Mustard. Doesn't he have a monocle? He's kind of Lord he, Peter. He sure enough does have a monocle, <laughs> just like I wear. <laughs> so you are Lord Peter. Well, well, with with that, I'm gonna let you get back to your sleuthing. Um, All right, Professor Plum. <laughs> Oh no, I'm uh I like to be um uh what's the other one who uh he's bald headed on the um Mr. on the cover. No 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 no. I um shoot, this is good radio. Mr. Whatever. Green, Mr. Green <laughs> no, Mr. No, Green. No, 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 no. That's not who I was thinking of. Not Professor Plum? Hold on, let me Google clue characters real quick. <laughs> <laughs> Miss Mrs. Peacock. That's what it is. Oh, oh Mrs. Peacock. Peacock is who I always was as a kid. I never had enough confidence to try to pull off Miss Scarlet, so I just went with Miss Peacock. <laughs> well, uh, with speaking of confidence, Tim, how confident are you that your team is going to win the Super Bowl on Sunday? Oh, David, I'm so nervous. I actually, <laughs> if I was a betting man, I would probably bet against them. I, I, I think that they can win. But we're talking about the New England Patriots. We're talking about the dynasty. Ugh. They're a great team. Well, Don't uh, compliment the Patriots. I'll kick you off this show. <laughs> <laughs> T- today we are all Falcons fans, Tim. Good. Okay. Yes, we are. Well, I, I, sweet Falcon. Welcome the, to the bandwagon. By the time everybody listens to this, the, the game will have been settled. And you will either be in mourning or you will be elated. But um, best of luck to you and your Dirty Birds, you. uh, which that's not an insult. Just no, for anybody not. who does, who's not familiar, that's not an insult. Um, we, uh, I guess, we'll talk to everyone uh, on Super Bowl Monday. I know people who think it should be a national holiday. Um, <laughs> but, so uh, when you're recovering, just put the show on and bake some cookies, play Clue, drink Perfect. support. I think we had decided that was the, the the episode, the drink of this episode. Um, Definitely. <laughs> but I, I guess with that, uh, thanks to everyone who's been listening. Remember, you can head over to iTunes or Stitcher to subscribe to this show uh, when you do. It would be great if you could leave us a review, either a starred review or a comment review or, you know, you know, if you're feeling really generous, do both. Uh, okay, I don't know how to subscribe on Stitcher. Is that just when you add it to your favorites? I'm not seeing yeah, the yeah, button yeah, to I, subscribe. Yeah, I think it's just, I think you're just adding it to like you can create a playlist and all that and think okay. you're adding it. I did favorites. that then. Woohoo! If you're using the iTunes app or or like the podcast app that comes with the iPhone or iOS or the iPad or whatever, then uh, you'll just hit the subscribe button. But, you know, the reviews, the reviews, both the stars and the comments, as I've said before, do help with the algorithms. They get us higher in the charts and, and all that kind of stuff. So um, you can help our feed our pride and our bottom line by doing that. And then in doing so, you also can feed your addiction to terrible podcasting about books uh <laughs> with, with with that angelina tim any final thoughts 
no oh, final thought. I can't top thought. that. Can't top go that. Fal- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> go, uh, go Falcons. And uh, we will talk to everyone next week on the Prosoci Podcast Network. Thanks for listening.